Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you confuse your ego for your dignity, you want to prioritize that and camp all your life around that and try to avoid that. But it's okay to get your ego bruised and beaten. Oh. What you really need to preserve is your dignity. And that is really touched. That is always preserved most of the time. Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Hey there, I am excited to bring you our guest today. I think you're really going to enjoy hearing from uh, our, our guest. He is an expert in a variety of things, but has written a book called A Love Affair with Failure, When Hitting Bottom Becomes a Launchpad to Success. So our guest today is Ola Kunle Sorian, but everyone calls him PK. And so talking before the show, PK it is. PK, uh, well, tell us a little bit more about you in just a minute, but welcome to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Um, I look forward to having a great time. Uh, so I am looking forward to it as well. Well, some things you need to know about PK uh, going into this conversation is that he's the Chief Knowledge Officer and Lead Strategist at Kenneth Sorian Research and Ideas, LLC, as well as, as I mentioned, he's the co-author of this uh, Forbes book, A Love Affair with Failure, that we're going to be talking about. Um, also, uh, PK, you founded, uh, how is it, Eshiria Africa? Africa? Yes. So a nonprofit that, uh, tell us about your nonprofit. What are you trying to do with the nonprofit? Well, I, I'm just trying to empower people of African descent, right? Empower them to be able to think at the highest level possible. 1% of them, actually, I'm not trying to talk to everybody, you know, but I believe that you don't need a bunch of keys to open a door. You need just one key, the right key. Mm. So I'm not trying to get everybody, just the action movers, the impact makers, and helping them to confront the most pressing challenges facing the continent and helping them to build the kind of options that can transform that environment. And 1%, you can do a lot with that many people. 1% of a large number of people is a lot of people. Sure. <laughs> All right. And you're also the CEO of Africa House, a platform that links investors with entrepreneurs and innovators of African descent. So you have got a lot going on and, uh, you're, and you've used your skills to serve various arms of government, different organizations in different parts of the world, uh, including Fortune 500s like Coca-Cola, Microsoft, Total, and Shell. I've heard of them. Great. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to talk about a love affair with failure in your book here. But before we do, just so that uh, we can learn a little bit more about you, can you tell us about, take us back to your earliest memory of yourself as a leader? Yeah. I mean, my leadership is kind of a peculiar experience that I cherish not just because of the privilege of standing in the office of leadership, but the kind of experiences that I had evolved from, right? Um, I think a compelling one would be the fact that I spent 12 years in college studying a four-year course. It's just a four-year course, but I was in college for 12 years. At the end of 12 years, you should have a bachelor's degree. You should have a master's degree, an MBA, and a doctorate degree at the end of 12 years. You use four years for the bachelor's, you use two years for the master's, another two years for the MBA, and say another four years at most for your, your, but at the end of 12 years, what I had was a bachelor's degree, right? And it wasn't funny, it wasn't because I was doing anything fantastic, I was failing, I wasn't doing well. I was struggling with everything from gangs to, from I've tasted everything from chewing gum to some of the most complex substances in the world. I was a young man, I was a fool, I was making mistakes, wrong judgments, you know, and my nuisance value in that environment had increased so much because I was contributing unguardedly 
to the irritation of the environment, you know, to the disorderliness of the environment. So I was feeling at the end of my first year, I had over nine courses I was yet to pass. By the time I got to my fourth year, which was supposed to be my final year, I had over 52 courses I was yet to pass. So I wasn't graduating. So I spent the next eight years after the first four years trying to graduate. And it was such a torture. People doubted me. My mom used to call me Methuselah. Methuselah is supposed to be like the oldest person in the Bible. I idea was I was going to be in school forever. It was tough, but I wasn't going to let go. Um, I stayed in there, cleaned myself up, um, um, stand where I need to, and fought whatever demons I was dealing with and got a degree. And I've gone on after that to do so many great things, but that was some experience that told me so many things that I work with today. The idea that at every point in time, I have to represent possibilities, not just for myself, but for everyone around me. And that it is my duty to take responsibility for the energy um, in my environment, how people feel, how people interpret their realities and the kind of parities that they embrace. That is the perspective that I see leadership from, is the idea that the wisdom and the strength that I find the privilege to exude has to unlock gratitude and direction in that environment. Mm -hmm. But my, my, my feeling experience produced that kind of conviction for me. Mm -hmm. Taking responsibility for the, the way that you're showing up and the energy uh, and what's happening in any group of people or, or situation, circumstance you're in. Um, you know, when you're talking about that perseverance. I mean, there are many people who get to the end of four years or five years or six years and don't have a degree. Not many of them choose to stick it out and figure out that path forward. What motivated you to do that? You didn't have to, you could have made a different choice. Yes. Take us back. Like what helped you? Why, why did you choose that? Yeah, so this was in Africa, right? And in Africa, options are kind of arrested every day. You know, you have limited options, whichever way you turn. If you go to school, you don't sort you out. We know in Africa that first in class is not first in life. We know, right? But to stand a chance to make any meaningful contribution, you need your bachelor's degree. It's just, it doesn't give you a level playing field right but it gives you a chance to make a contribution and to say that you are you are here right and i'm, I'm here for something great so um to not get a degree the, the the implication of that was too incomprehensible for me right now let's be clear i had people around me friends who had similar experiences but gave up all the same mm -hmm. somehow they could accept that low state of human conditioning and expression, but mm -hmm. I couldn't. I, I knew some things I wasn't going to settle for. I wasn't going to be weak. I wasn't going to be poor. I wasn't going to be, um, I'm, I'm not going to accept any state that denies me the opportunity to make a contribution. Somehow, even in my lowest state, even in my foolish moments, I've always believed in the promise of the human condition that every human being can do something bigger than himself. I've always believed in that. And somehow, I guess, providence allowed me not to give up on that spirit, on that mm -hmm. point. I just mm -hmm. believed I, I can count for something. You know, if I stay in here and I beat this out, it will add up to something. Uh, it did. And it's almost that feeling of it had to. It, uh, you were just not willing to accept a existence that didn't include that. It didn't, it didn't at all. <laughs> It's beautiful. It so, wasn't part of my articulation. Well, and that and that is, you know, you've shared one story of uh, a series of failure or disappointment or not things not working the way you would have liked. And you share so many others and you have so many great stories of not just your own, but from around the world in, in yeah. this book, A Love Affair with Failure, When Hitting Bottom Becomes a Launchpad to Success. And, you know, as you start, start the book in the opening pages, there's this uh, quote that I wanted to, to pull out and have you expand on for us. Today, every creation deemed successful is composed of the aggregated results of things not going exactly as planned. 
Yes. And, you know, when, when I'm reading this book, A Love Affair with Failure, it really is. It reads like an ode to failure, to the beauty of creation and learning and, and how things happen. So um, talk with us a little bit about this approach to failure. And obviously, you've lived it. You see it. It's something you believe in passionately. Can you expand on that for us? Yes, thank you so much. I mean, my thinking is that when you look at it, there's no one we admire out there. Call him um, Benjamin Franklin or, you know, Isaac Newton or, you know, Oprah Winfrey or Abraham Lincoln. You find that you really can't find any powerful, compelling success without a history of failing. Now, I use the word failing intentionally because failing is not failure. Stumbling is not failure as well. Failure is a noun. Nouns are oppressive. They speak to finalities, right? Mm -hmm. um, verbs are continuous and they speak of a journey. So failing is a journey. Failure is an end, right? And I think that destination called failure is an impossible articulation. And you only get to that point by choice. It's only when you allow yourself to experience failure, which is a final state of your journey, that that happens to you. As long as we keep, you know, the force of hope, right, to live inside of us, we really have the capacity to birth newness. So my thinking, you know, is that failing is a constant. I don't know any human being. Oprah Winfrey was fired for um, as a news anchor. Walt Disney was fired for not being creative enough. Beat that, for not being creative enough, <laughs> Walt Disney. It's just how people see that experience. So people will always interpret you in ways that are true to how they think, but that doesn't in any way validate that kind of thinking about you. So um, that's the way I see it. And I tell everyone, if you allow the idea of failure to rest in your mind, it arrests your sense of adventure, what I call adventure capital. It, it arrests your adventure capital and your sense of audacity. It keeps you in a state, in a suboptimal state where you are around, but you are not present. You know, you are not, you're doing stuff, but you are not making that compelling impact that your individuality deserves as a human being, right? And so I consider failure as an oppressive, you know, quantity, and that the freedom of the human spirit itself is the ability to accept the worst of himself, right? But also the commitment to celebrate the best of himself, even to be ready to have both of them parallel to each other because the person that can be perfect or supply perfect behavior has never been born, will never be born. So if we insist that only through perfect behavior will we have peace or progress, then we will never have it. So, and perfect judgment don't exist, right? So we're gonna make mistakes of judgment, we're gonna make mistakes of association, we're gonna put the wrong premium on the wrong things, you know, and all of that. And that makes failing constant. And if it is constant and sure, what kind of persons ought we to be? So it's like death to me. Mm. If death is sure, what kind of person do I need to be? Should I live the rest of my life afraid of what is sure? What is gonna to happen to me? I think we should dimension that to some level of intelligence to say, I can, this is a constant, so I have to receive this and I have to trans transcend this. You know, PK, as you're talking, one of the things that occurs to me is when you're talking about there is no perfect person, no perfect thinking, no perfect process, that, that this embracing of the concept of failing and failing forward and, and that it's really where hope comes from. If I am stuck in believing that the goal is some kind of perfection or, or lack of experiencing failures then I, I'm going to be hopeless because Correct. that's never the world that I'm going to live in. It's never the journey I'm going to be on. Correct. And 
and, and I think about my own efforts at change in my life, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, running a race or getting in shape or climbing a mountain or writing a book or, or any of the things that, that I've done, there have often been times that they started with a feeling of hopelessness because I was expecting the journey to be smooth. Yes. And it's never going to be smooth as part no, of what you're saying. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, you know, part of what I say every time is it doesn't matter if it's a process, it doesn't matter if it's a person, a system, or an environment, or a product, or a service. Everything exists in three formats. Everything in the world, person or thing, is in a um, state of existence that we see, is in a phase of development that we don't see, and is in a season of usefulness that we don't see. And so in the excellence of what is existing, my wristwatch looks perfect, yours looks great, the microphone looks awesome, but as excellent as it is, it is in a state of existence, it's in a phase of development, because there's an imperfection in it that tomorrow's people must find and build solution blueprints around to build the next level of that microphone, right? And then it's in a season of usefulness. If we bring this microphone out in 10 years, it's gonna look like some weapon, right? Because <laughs> it's outdated, right? That goes for a car, that goes for everything. So if nothing is perfect, the imperfection of a thing or of a person is the guarantee of engagement for tomorrow's people. That is mm -hmm. the guarantee of meaning and experience for tomorrow's people. That is the guarantee of continuity. Mm. So how do I say that if that is true, just consider that if that is true, then errors of judgment are sure, mistakes then are sure, because it is those mistakes that validate continuity for tomorrow's people. That's just yeah. how it works. Yeah, That's how I see it. You know, when you're saying that, there, there's a, a leadership element that occurs to me, uh, because so many leaders, I think, it's very common that leaders will make the mistake of trying to appear perfect or not own their imperfections or, or call attention to them or try to cover them up. And uh, it reminds me of something a, a mentor of mine years ago said that when you put yourself on a pedestal, uh, that actually, again, creates hopelessness in other people because, oh, well, you're special. Of course you could do it, but I'm not special. I know my own imperfections, so I can't possibly hope to grow, to achieve, to do what you're doing. Correct. So, you know, along those lines, one of the studies that you start the book with that I just found fascinating, and I had not seen this before, Great. was uh, talking about, it was a study of high school students. And so some of them were exposed to kind of a normal textbook about different people who were successful. And Oprah Winfrey was this, you know, TV host with this amazing show. And this sports figure did that. And this scientist had these breakthroughs and, and discoveries. And then the other group, they were exposed to something different. The stories they read were more about the arduous journeys that yes. people went on. So tell us about that. What were the results? What were the findings of these, these two different groups and what they experienced? So what they found was the other group, you know, um, began to, as, as a matter of fact, we didn't capture a lot of what that study revealed. We're just able to document some of that because what started happening was um, the guys who didn't have the, who had the privilege in the, um, in the other, the, the second group, you know, um, where all of a sudden um, forming a different set of habits, you know, um, they were working with a different set of assumptions, you know, and they, they, they found themselves somehow producing outcomes, you know, that were not exactly um, um, what they were expected to be producing. Like you have the people at the bottom of the class in a place and you have a class of the A students and you expect the A students to get all the ACs and you expect the people in the bottom of the class not to do well. And all of a sudden, the people at the bottom of the class with a different set of habits, not with the common habits of the successful people and the A-class students, began to produce the right results mm. and began to demonstrate, you know, um, without necessarily um, changing their methods, but definitely had a different type of hope, which was giving them a different type of conditioning. You know, and you know, in my in my lecture rooms, um, and when I teach, 
how do I say to people to have the freedom to consider that there's more inside of them to produce the kind of um, outcomes that they prefer than outside of them. And that outside of you are different templates and models, you know, different standards, you know, and logic, you know, different ideas outside of you, except that all those ideas are human inventions. They were things created by other people as they submit themselves to their own experiences. To really think and operate zero to one, because when you look outside of yourself, you are overwhelmed by a lot of thinking from one to infinity, because somebody created one and is trying to expand that. So you have one to infinity. To have the zero to one type of thinking, you have to learn to listen to yourself, to take a bet on your own ideas, you know. And I say to people, if you are ready, you are late. You know, if you if you have the courage. Okay, wait, wait, wait. I gotta stop it. <laughs> if you are ready, you are late. You are late. Oh, now that's a soundbite. If you are ready, you are late. Okay, uh, walk us through that. Unpack that. Yeah, I mean, so the idea of chasing perfection, trying to avoid shame or loss, or trying not to fail, and therefore become so guarded and hide behind the idea of excellence. Right when in actual fact you are just paralyzed mm. by the possibility of losing or of failure, and I say that most of what we call failure is a bruise on the ego. There's a big difference between ego and dignity. A lot of times our dignity is intact, our ego is what is bruised, and when you when you confuse your ego for your dignity, you want to prioritize that and camp all your life around that and try to avoid that. But it's okay to get your ego bruised and beaten. Oh. What you really need to preserve is your dignity. And that is really touched. That is Ooh. always preserved most of the time. Wow, PK, that just resonates so much. And I that distinction, I think, is so important for every leader listening uh, in terms of how we lead our team, how we're showing up as an authentic human being, the hope that we're inspiring people with. So if you're ready, you're late. That means that if I'm waiting until I feel like I have it handled to get started, then I'm missing the actual you are, journey. You are, you are actually out of the game because you're mm. going to find that the universe doesn't compensate that. Mm. The universe compensates anomalies, you know, and that is a struggle for most people to understand. That is why you see people show up, you know, in some, you find someone like Abraham Lincoln losing all the elections and winning the most important one. You find, you know, people coming back from adversity, you know, and turning their narratives around because somehow the universe listens and the universe compensates, you know, those types of, you know, pardon me to say narratives, you know, when things are imperfect, it's in a line, it's in alignment with the energy of, um, of betterment, of improvement, of newness. And the idea of perfection, because it's an impossibility, cannot be supported by the elements. God doesn't support it. The elements don't support it because it's impossible. Mm. If, if anything can be perfect today, tomorrow will be unnecessary. The value of tomorrow's leaders is that today must not be perfect so that the the loopholes in our prevailing experiences is what tomorrow's people cap, camp around to bet tomorrow's solutions. So we, we, we need the boldness to allow the market hmm. to test the best of our initiatives, to allow what is out there to tell us if we are right or wrong. We can't stay in the lab or in the research rooms trying to validate the best of ideas. I always tell my team, get out there, take the risk. Just put yourself out there. The universe is listening. Is listening and the universe compensates such movement. So I that is why we have iPhone 12, iPhone 13, iPhone 14. You, you can't really camp around trying to imagine if Apple from day one were working on iPhone 14 and uh -huh. that's what they've been trying to get out. They will never make it, they will never do anything. I mean, somebody will have given up, they won't even have anything today, right? Ideas out in their best format, their prevailing format, and allow time and the consumers and the users of that idea to put the value they prefer on it. That is how we grow. 
if you're trying to put your iPhone 14 version of yourself out there before you've done the first version, it's impossible and it's you're, impossible. and you're stuck. It's stuck. That's such a, such a beautiful image. So powerful. PK, this is uh, such a good conversation. You talk about in uh, a love affair with failure, your book here, when hitting bottom becomes a launch pad to success. You talk about success being a lousy teacher. Yes. Success is a lousy teacher and all that we can learn from all the process and everything we've been talking about. Why is success a lousy teacher? And as leaders, how can we help our teams to be making the most of, of all the learning that's available, whether it's from success or from failure or, or things not going as planned? So I tell leaders every time that if you over celebrate a prevailing success, you deny yourself the opportunity to lead in the next one, because just as you um, appreciate your, so your successes, you know, I have a chart that I usually draw in my classroom. I have a chart which has season of success. Right after that is contrary situation and contrary um, seasons that, and it's a wheel. I call it the wheel of arrangement. As soon as you experience success, the next experience is not gonna be as promising as that success, probably negative, probably something like a setback. It seems to me from my studies, and I've not had any reason to change that, crisis is a forerunner of peace. It's a forerunner of power, is what I've found. New level is kind of new devil. So you, you, you can't just, feel too cool in your victory. And as soon as you succeed, success is going to give you a false idea, this temporary you know, feeling that you have arrived, like yeah. something great has happened. And yeah. then life knocks you in the face with something you couldn't have envisaged. There's something called unplanned interruptions. And they are constant. They are as constant as your commitment to wake up every day. So success is going to teach you wrong. It's going to make you feel an idea of permanence that is not true. You know, failure is a failing rather is a better teacher because it keeps you on the edge and it tells you, hey, don't settle. Love this moment, but move on. <laughs> and, and every time something happens in our camp, in our business, in our work, and we achieve something great, while everybody is celebrating, I'm, I'm done. I celebrate, but I'm in the next challenge because I know something is coming. Could it be possible? Could it be possible that we can actually not create our negative experiences, but have a nimble, some elastic mental posture that is just capable of receiving anything? So I summarize that as this. What is coming, we come. So the idea that we can be nimble enough, elastic enough, to accept that, you know, um, what is coming will come, no matter who you are, no matter how sweet your prevailing experiences, you can control what is coming. What is coming is coming. It is who you are, how you see, how you prepare, how you hear, how you interpret, how you judge, decide, and act that makes the difference. So it means that you and I are going to have the same experiences. The differences will be, the difference will be in how we interpret that experience and how prepared we are for that experience. So mm -hmm. failing keeps you prepared. Success keeps you indulged. That's, that's, that's the way I say it. So uh, success for me is just a lousy teacher. <laughs> <laughs> a lousy teacher. You know, when, when you were talking about what success does and, and why we never, there is no arrive. It's not, there's not that sense of, oh, I've arrived and I'm there. And it's, that is what it is. The, the early in my career and my leadership journey, I had this recognition one day that every problem I solved, I'd solve a problem that was I was dealing with and I'd figure out a way forward and, uh, and the team would do something and we'd, we'd get a new solution and that would work. But all that does is unlock the door to another set of problems. Correct. And hopefully they're better problems, they're bigger problems, they're, they're challenges that are at a different scale, a scope, and we're being more effective in the world. But that it's that same journey that you're talking about, that there's not an arrival because every time we arrive, it just allows us to see the path 
that now is ahead of us. That's it. That's it. That's exactly what I mean. And I have, and I'm sure you do have, I don't know any leader that doesn't know this as a fact, but somehow we allow ourselves to sleep away from it. <laughs> and we are stunned and shocked when those things happen, right? Can we do better if we have a mentality and a culture that pretty much understands that, situates that, and we are not expecting trouble, but we are ready for whatever it is, you know, and that is the difference. Yeah. You know, um, I, I've been in situations where, I mean, I know of, of a lady who, and uh, um, she had a very tragic experience because she, she passed, but she, her twin sister was in the same car with her and she was driving and she, they got to a cliff that seems like they were going to fall off. She panicked and she was going to match the brakes and she matched the accelerator and they flew out. Oh, she was going to match the brakes. Mm -hmm. but, but you see, because she was too, she was not in the moment, you know, and she wasn't expecting that, you know, that is, it's explainable that I, she just pressed the accelerator. She was so busy trying to get out of that situation. She lost control of her moments. Right. And, and, and I think that's what happens to us when we, you know, uh, prioritize, get so fearful about failure. We want to avoid it by all means. What it does is it loosens the screws that holds us together in the present. Mm. It, we're not just present enough to do the critical things when it matters the most. That's yeah. so powerful. Wow. You're dropping so many good thoughts on us here. I love it. We're talking with Ola Kunle, story on everyone calls him PK, the co-author of A Love Affair with Failure, When Hitting Bottom Becomes a Launchpad to Success. Uh, so much more in this book that we can talk about. I, I want to go to chapter four, because I think this is an important mm -hmm. chapter when we talk about navigating, embracing, making the most of failing failures. Um, the title of the chapter is The Burden of Naysayers. Yes. And so we, we've been talking a lot so far about our own journey and how we're looking at things. But part of the reality we have to deal with is other people. And, and, you know, you were even talking about it in your journey through university with the naysayers that people are like, what are you doing? Yes. <laughs> so the, the question is, how can we deal with naysayers? Uh, what do we do, you know, when people are not as motivating as we would hope and maybe even demotivating in their approach to what's happening with us? Yeah. So what I always say every time to myself, my son, um, and to, you know, in my classrooms, um, is that naysayers are needed. You, you, you need them around you. Mm. Um, it, it doesn't sound right. It, it doesn't sound like you, you, they are useful to you, but without them, I doubt if you can find the intensity and the passion and the energy to really drive yourself at the level that you need to. There's just something about being comfortable, right? And I, I mean, I say to myself, if I look behind me and I see a chicken right there, I'm not going to run. I'm not going to express any fear. It's just a chicken. Even if it decides to attack me, I can take this chicken <laughs> You know, it's just a chicken. You know, if I look behind me, though, and I see a lion, even if he's sleeping, even if he's sleeping, even if he's dead, if I don't see any blood, if, if, I, if, I'm not, if I can't prove that he's dead, the way I react is different just because of my perception of what is behind me. Mm. So when I look behind me and I see a lion there, there's, you know, there's this Chinese you know, adage that, that says that you know, when the um, antelope wakes up in the jungle in the morning, he thinks he has to run for, and a gazelle wakes up in the morning, he knows he has to run faster than the fastest lion. And when the lion wakes up in the morning, he knows he has to run faster than the fastest gazelle. It's just jungle behavior. It's just the way it works. Nothing is promised here. So in the same way, naysayers kind of contribute to your resolve, you know. Mm -hmm. They don't contribute to too many things, but they let you know we are here to laugh you out. We are here to scorn you. We are here to give you all the miserable emotions that you don't need. We will be here. And somehow, that's not your motivation at all. 
That's not what drives you. What drives you is the outcomes that you see, is, is the eventuality that you want to create, is the outcomes you prefer that drives you. But that kind of contributes to your energy and your resolve to know. So every time people come to me to say, oh, look at you, because everybody in my family graduated college before me, including my two younger ones, right? I became like a proverb in my neighborhood back way back in Africa. Parents talk to their kids and use me as the example, like, do you want to be like him? Do you want to be like him? Do you want to be like him? You know, and that was, and I could feel people talking as I walked my street. I could feel, you know, parents, you know, pointing fingers and saying, oh, that's him. That's him. You know, look at the guy. You know, today I'm still a proverb. But the proverb now is, don't you want to be like? Yeah. Don't you want to be like? Don't you uh, see me on TV? They see me in, in the big platform. They see me in the newspapers. Now it's a different narrative, right? But I knew that every time I confront some challenges, I hear those voices saying, yeah. we told you, we're waiting yeah. for you. And there's just a part of me that says, no, this is not going to happen. I'm going to hang in here. You know, I'm just going to stay here. You know, I'd rather die here. You know, so I don't think people should be um, weary or, you know, worried about naysayers. We should flip that. We should actually see them as the necessary voices to continue to find your resolve. And you know, use that use that as energy to fuel yes. our, our forward motion. Yes. You know, uh, you were two things strike me as you're talking about using that energy. One is, as with failure, everything else is part of your message here is expect it. That's Naysayers it. are going to happen. There's nothing exactly. wrong, indifferent. It's just the way the world it is. is. <laughs> so let's let's accept that there are going to be naysayers and they might be people who you wouldn't think would be, but they're going to. So let's accept that. And then let's use that energy. Yeah. You know, as I was reading that chapter, uh, the second thing that occurred to me too was uh, a previous guest that we had on the show. His name is John register. He was a uh, Olympic hurdler and uh, he, he was hurtling and he hit his leg and he ended up having his losing his leg. Oh. from a hurdling accident and he talks about his journey and and overcoming and, and he got fitted with a prosthetic and he eventually went on to win a silver medal uh with the prosthetic leg in the in the long jump wow. but he, when he talks about naysayers one of the things that i i was reminded of as i was reading your work is the way that he told me one time he said when people say you can't do it Often what they're really saying is they can't see themselves doing it. It's correct. not about, it's not about you at all. Correct. That's so correct. I, I believe that fully. And, and I see that every time I see that somehow people hide their helplessness in the comfort of pointing fingers, you know, it's just a way to assure themselves that they are not alone, you know, and a level of strength can reside in us to see through that, you know. And, and when I was dealing with my own, some of my struggles, I wasn't thinking this way, to be honest. But I've grown such that when I see naysayers now, I want to see what they're afraid of. Mm. I want to see what their insecurities are. Mm. What, is it, what is it trying to hide? What does it need me to be the shield for? Mm. You know, why does my, what does my story validate for him? you know, and, and that way I, I'm able to help them. Um, and then that also helped me from not paying attention. You know, you know, part of what I've said every time is, you know, the, the concept of slavery. And as an African, you know, a lot of, a lot of people around me have a problem with, with this when I talk about slavery, right? And I, because I don't think slavery is a bad idea at all. Honestly, I think that slavery was um, corrupted in slave trade. Because I think in a flawed world that we are living, governed by imperfection, I think slavery is a necessity. I think that every human being, as a matter of fact, anywhere is enslaved to something, such that true freedom is the ability to choose what enslaves you. And when slavery is chosen for you, 
when you are told what to do, when to do it, who to do it with, that is when slavery is a problem. When you choose your slavery, like I, I say that I'm a slave of wisdom. I don't want to be free from whatever burden wisdom puts on me. Wisdom doesn't have a color, doesn't have an address, doesn't live anywhere, it's intangible, right? But, but I choose to be a slave of that. Mm. I, I think that the freedom without rules is a vice to try to avoid you know, all of the limitations that life can bring itself is a problem. So we have to choose what we want to release ourselves to. You know, even, no, no matter how much um, of the test of popularity they fail. So, so for me, um, naysayers or the concept of enmity are things I have prioritized differently because I really don't see how I can eliminate that idea in life. It's like poverty. When people say in Africa, oh, we are trying to, you know, um, eradicate poverty. I say, how are you going to do that with the irrationality of the human condition? Some people will make themselves poor. Mm. That's my problem with welfare economics. I respect it. I honor it. But I also think that we have to know that the wretchedness of the human condition will create some negativities in life. And it's our choice how we want to interpret that. The poor, somebody will choose to be poor, regardless of the counsel to be prosperous, right? So somebody will choose to be a fool. I'm sorry to say that. And, and, and foolishness is not an insult. It's a state of existence. It means there is a set of behavior that conforms to a definition. As I cannot call a carpenter a surgeon, I can't call a foolish person a wise person. And I used to think that I have to do something wrong for people to criticize me or to hate me. But I realized I don't have to do anything wrong. As a matter of fact, I can be hated for doing everything right. Mm. You know, and I'm a Christian. And, and in my Christian faith, you know, um, the story of Jesus is, is liberating for me. The idea that he did nothing and he was killed for doing nothing, you know, for not offending anyone, right? And that's, that's my faith. So I, I've come to that understanding that we need that ability for what I call CIA, credible independent actions, to be able to take credible independent actions that fail the test of popularity, but pass the test of meaning, of essence. And that happens inside of you. It's an inside job that gives you the power to arrest the world inside out and refuse the oppression outside in. Mm. so naysayers are part of our lives <laughs> yeah, absolutely so much wisdom in, in what you're saying and, and i appreciate the reframing and reinterpretation and, and reowning some of those words and concepts too we're talking with ola kunle sorry on here the author co-author of a love affair with failure when hitting bottom becomes a launch pad to success and i'm looking at the clock and recognizing gosh we are just about out of time but uh, so i'll ask you one more question but before i do uh pk can you tell us where we can connect with you, connect, uh, find the book, where we can uh, learn more about your work uh, in Africa? Where should we go? Great. Thank you so much. My website is kenensurion.com. Um, and then um, you could Google the book, A Love Affair with Failure. you find a million platforms. We were number one on day one on all platforms when the book came out. We're number one on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Wall Street Journal, you know, USA Today, you know, I mean, uh, so the book is there. You can find it on Amazon. Just Google it and you find, is anywhere books are sold, I believe, <laughs> you know. Uh, but but my, my, my website is Olakunishurian. And my social media pages, Instagram, Twitter, is Olakunishurian, one word. Yeah. All right. And we'll uh, we'll get all those links into the show notes there too. So you can go to the, the webpage and find them there. I encourage you to connect and to take a look at this book. Uh, very inspiring. A love affair with failure. When hitting bottom becomes a launch pad to success. So the last thing I, I want to ask you about, uh, PK, is um, you, you talk about, and you've hinted at this in a number of the things you've said, that ultimately motion is survival. Yes. That stand, stasis, that standing still is, is not a good idea. And yeah. that motion is survival. Yeah. And uh, so walk us through what you mean by that, because I, I, I and the reason I'm asking is 
on the one hand, I totally think I get it. And then on the other hand, sometimes I want to rest and I think it's good to not be moving and to be reflective and, and so on. And so finding the balance in that and how we move to survive, but yet don't over move or hit the gas near the cliff like you shared yeah. earlier. Yeah. So, um, I mean, thank you for that. That's, that's something that is priceless in, for me personally, because I, I begin movement from the mind. I always talk about the movement of the mind and that should be constant, whether we are, even when we are sleeping, we're dreaming and we should daydream. We shouldn't accept the common definitions about movements because movement transcends the limits of matter, right? We can move in our minds, it's a borderless world. Every human being is designed with, to be borderless. And my mind can go where my body can never go. Um, if we look at a gentleman like Stephen Hawking, who was supposed to be physically challenged, but his mind was producing, you know, at a level that transcends, you know, the limits of how he's contained physically. And I think that is weighty and we should zoom and lean into that, you know, to understand that first of all, the mind is limitless. And again, opportunities come to us, you know, within the you know, confines of how we see and, and dreaming should cost nothing. You know, enthusiasm is free. Optimism doesn't cost a dollar. You know, we can employ those things every day and take ourselves to places that our physical bodies cannot go, right? And, you know, that is what I say, I agree with um, um, Johnny Walker. So keep moving, you know, just keep moving, you know. Um, even when your body cannot move, your mind can move. Mm. Keep dreaming, therefore, because mm. dreaming is free. Mm. And I, I say to people, you, you, don't, you are not designed to pursue your dreams. You, you are designed to position for your dreams because your dreams themselves are designed to gravitate towards you. Don't fall into the trap of looking for what is looking for you. You always miss each other. So don't, don't, don't pursue your dreams. Position for your dreams. And that starts here. Let your mind move, you know, and then physically um, keep moving. Now you can adjust how you move because just because you are a human being, you can move every time at a pace that you want. There'll be traffic, you know, you miss your flight, you do all of that. So the most credible way to move is here because once you leave your mind, there are so many factors that limit your movement, you know, planning, budgets, you know, um, fund, you know, the, the cooperation of your friends, your, your lieutenants, your partners, you know, seeing what you don't see or you seeing what they don't see. There's a lot that is hindered there. The real capacity to move is here. And, you know, um, we're writing a second book already for folks. And this particular point is a major, we, we, the title of that is Big Swings. And we're trying to really blow this particular conversation about movement and how every big thing I've seen in my life were things I was able to imagine, first of all. Mm. And that we should prioritize that, that, move, that type of movement parallel to whatever it is we're doing physically, right? Yes. Um, yeah, that's, that's something I'd like to share there, but that's a prelude to our new book coming. I love it. We get the sneak peek, the look ahead. So real movement begins in the mind that's the that's the the dreaming and the conceptualization and the thinking and reflection that's the beginning of all movement for every and, and we should allow it to almost overwhelm us because you are going to get a different feedback from your reality and reality is untrue i say that every time reality is untrue reality is a partial always a partial representation of truth because the strength of reality is facts. And fact is just a manipulatable quantity compared to the weight of what is true. So I say to, to I say every time that don't, don't be governed by your reality because your reality is incomplete every time. So you and I look static right now, but science tells us that we are actually spinning. We are spinning, right? But there are elements in our consciousness and around us that make us feel static but the earth is spinning. You know, you sit in a car that is moving at maybe two, 200 miles per hour. 
and you are like, hey, you want to hold the, the, the driver and say, hey, take it easy. You are moving too fast. You could feel the threat with the speed. But you, then you sit in a plane that is moving far faster than the car can ever move. And you are calm because your reality is arrested. If you could see the speed of the plane, you probably jump out of the plane <laughs> without knowing that you are in the air. But you sit in the plane comfortably because everything is solid. Your cup is not moving. Everything looks like you're not even moving at all. You look out of the window and you are wondering, are we moving? You know, <laughs> well, you are moving so fast. You're going to cover a eight-hour journey by road in one hour in the air. You are moving so fast. But your reality is kind of arrested. So, yes. so, so we have to come to that place to know that whatever we see is an incomplete representation of something deeper. So we should keep what we see in the mind parallel to that. It's like a parallel universe. We have to live in both ways at the same time, doing two different things. We can be facing adversity here, and we can be facing bliss here in our mind, right? Um, it's, it's, it's much, it's so powerful, which we have time to dwell on that, but that is such a powerful instrument. Well, that's a good place to leave the conversation in order to inspire people to take that next step themselves, uh, and start positioning yourself for your success, not chasing your dream, positioning for your dream. I love that distinction. You've given us so many of those, uh, in the conversation here. Once again, uh, we've been talking with, uh, Olakunle, Soryan, everyone calls him PK co-author of a love affair with failure when hitting bottom becomes a launch pad to success. Uh, thank you so much for being a guest on the show with us today. Thank you so much. I feel really blessed and empowered to share time with you. Thanks. Uh, we, we appreciate it. And so uh, listeners, as you're wrapping up the conversation and getting ready to head out here, where can you embrace that failure? Where can you reposition your thinking and acknowledge the journey you're on not be working on version 14.0, but start with version 1.0 of whatever it is that you're about right now, you and your team are getting after. So let's do that. Give ourselves that grace and be the leader we'd want our boss to be. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.